KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. We are always looking to drill down into Supreme Court cases. Now, some of these cases make really big headlines, but then there are others that maybe don't get quite the media attention, but they could have a huge impact nonetheless. And we think one of those cases is the United States versus Rahimi. It's a case that deals with guns, who should be allowed to have them, and a previous controversial Supreme Court decision. The Fifth Circuit, that is even more extreme than Supreme Court, has kind of called the question and said, oh, you set this up, I'm going to take the most extreme version of it. And I think here we'll see if the court will correct itself and say, actually, we don't mean a historical analogy, we mean something slightly different. I'm Matt Leon, and today on KYW News Radio In-Depth, sponsored by your Delaware Valley Honda dealers, make memories during happy Honda days, we talk with Dr. Susan Bell, a professor of political science at St. Joseph's University, about this case and what the arguments tell us about what the justices are thinking. So let's start by talking about the case itself. Kind of give us the primer, United States versus Rahimi. What was it all about? So... Uh, these are unsavory facts, I'll just say in advance. Uh, Zaki Rahimi is alleged to have beat up his girlfriend called uh, CM in court documents in a parking lot. And uh, after dragging her to the car, pushing her head against the dashboard, uh, Rahimi saw that he was being watched by a bystander. Uh, he took out his gun. He shot it in his air in the air. And the girlfriend took the opportunity to flee. Rahimi telephoned her later and threatened to shoot her if she told anybody about what happened. She obtained a court-ordered domestic violence protective order against Mr. Rahimi. He's also been involved in other shootings involving road rage or like his friend's credit card was declined and he just pulled out a gun and shot somebody. Those are maybe not part of this case, but they're ultimately what led the police to Rahimi. And uh, there's a law in passed in 1994 by the Congress that says if you're under a domestic violence restraining order, you can't have guns and ammunition in your home. And when the police searched Mr. Rahimi's home for another crime, they found the protective order and the guns. So he did save the protective order. and uh, And he's in prison now for defying the federal law. And basically what was being argued in this case is that that concept of keeping guns away from people under domestic abuse protective orders is unconstitutional? Yeah, I mean, uh, the best version, uh, and I just want to say that Zaki Rahimi is nobody's dream candidate for uh, a gun rights case. I mean, he's about as terrible uh, a character as you would want because of the number of times he's done it, the witnesses, the scenario. It's it, None of this is, I don't think there's anybody who thinks that, he, again, this is a good case. But what he is arguing is that despite the fact that he did all of these cases, he's a person with sacred rights. And that's the word that they use, Matt, that have been violated by this federal law because the penalty is too harsh. And he's saying that unless he was convicted of a crime, he can't have his guns taken away. It's a protective order. You have to go to a hearing, you're summoned, you can have an attorney, there's evidence taken, there's facts heard by a judge. 
and then the protective order is issued. He's claiming that that's not enough due process and that, you know, his rights are being taken away. And his lawyer is also arguing that the Brune test, which comes out of the case that you and I talked about in June, uh, that says that you have to have a historical analogy for a law. He says, like, there is no historical analogy for taking guns away from people who are domestic abusers. So how did this case get to the Supreme Court? It was kind of weird. The case first came up before the Bruin case and the very conservative Fifth District ruled against Zaki Rahimi using the Heller case, which is from 2008. And they found that, in fact, the government was entitled to take guns away from people who had been found to be domestic abusers. So when Brun came down, the Fifth Circuit decided they would issue a redo. And they issued an opinion, a very offensive opinion, that said, actually, with the Brun case now, there is no historical analog. And we're afraid of Congress's power. If we give Congress power to take care of domestic abuse, well, they might take away guns from speeders, people who don't recycle and people who don't drive electric vehicles. And those are the actual examples the judge gave. And then there was a second judge, Judge Ho, in this case, who added that actually women just lie to get protective orders of domestic abuse because they want to have advantageous decisions in divorces. So we should be suspicious of this in the first place. It's a a very stark, hard to read Fifth Circuit decision. So That was appealed by the United States, and uh, it went to the Supreme Court, and now they will decide whether this law, the Violence Against Women Act passed by Congress in 94, if this one part of it that takes away guns is unconstitutional. And, And they're arguing that it absolutely is constitutional because they're saying that Congress was trying to take care of a problem that is critical. Uh, intimate partner violence is a, is a serious national problem. Uh, in 2019, nearly two-thirds of domestic violence homicides in the U.S. were committed with a gun. Uh, three women are killed every day in the United States by a current or former partner. And the presence of a gun in one of those domestic, in any domestic violence situation, increases the risk of homicide by 500%. So, you know, and it's not just people who are killed. It's also that uh, something like 33,000 non-fatal gun-involved intimate partner events happen every year. That's 90 per day. So the United States is arguing that Congress looked at something like those numbers, the numbers weren't as bad, and said at the time, we have a right to try to solve this problem. And the way we will do it is to try to get guns out of the sites in which these deaths and these injuries occur. So if somebody has a protective order, we will temporarily take away the gun. Uh, So what the United States is arguing is that this is a serious problem and Congress had passed a law that is limited, that has due process uh, for Mr. Rahimi. You know, he was able to to say these things and, and that there's a longstanding tradition in the United States of in the 18th century, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, of disarming what we call dangerous individuals. And there's nothing different about disarming domestic abusers. So they're saying that even if you accept this historical analogy argument, which is what the court has given us, 
then even so, we have a history of taking away guns from some people, and we can apply that principle. Meanwhile, Rahimi is saying, no, it has to be an exact twin. It has to be a law against taking away guns for domestic abuse. Before we talk about what you heard in the actual arguments and kind of any tea leave reading, what does it say about where we are as a society when basically the argument of should people that have done violent things not have access, easy access to weapons is kind of presented as a thought exercise and a legitimate discourse. And well, there's two sides, you know, some people think that dangerous people should be able to have guns. Like when you really kind of stop and think about it, it's almost insane to me that this is kind of where the Overton window is when it comes to our discussion about guns. Well, I I think Matt, it's actually very recent that we have this situation. Really, up until the 1980s, we have a lot of agreement in this country. So we we had agreement at the founding. We had agreement when we, after the Civil War, we've had agreement in the 60s about the fact that there are some kinds of guns, like machine guns, that in 1968, people said like, yes, Republicans and Democrats all said, absolutely, who needs a machine gun? other than a military officer. So we've had that agreement and we know that public opinion polls show that most Americans completely agree on things like background checks. They want people to be asked like, do you have a domestic abuse restraining order against you before you buy the guns? Or for example, the recent terrible tragedy in, in Maine. So we had all of this agreement, but in the 1980s, we saw a real turn in the politics of the right that led to the Republican Party embracing a very, very extreme position that they had never had. And, and remember, they had often claimed to be the, the party of law and order. And, and police at that time didn't want anyone to have guns except for them. And so what we've seen is a real change and a real change in the law. So 2008 is when the Heller case says that a law-abiding individual Uh, can have a gun in their home. That was in response to a complete and total ban on handguns in the District of Columbia. And the court said, no, that was the first time in the history of the United States that an individual right to a gun was claimed to be a constitutional right. So so 2008, so I, I think what we have is uh, it, this is politics. I keep saying that every time I come in to, on to talk about the court. It's not the Constitution. It hasn't changed. It's not the precedents. They're still there. But we make stuff up and we made something up that's new, which is that there's some sort of an absolute right to have a gun in the United States and that governments cannot regulate, for example, concealed carry. New York had a hundred year old law that this Supreme Court said wasn't traditional wasn't historical. But what is 100 years compared to six justices who are unelected just saying that what New York does is not traditional? So I I think we're in a weird environment in which we have this political split. We've had a legal change. And now we've added to it the embrace of something very extreme, the call for a historic analogy for any law That means we will not protect women. We will not protect LGBTQ people. We will not, in some senses, protect Black Americans because there will be no history and tradition of doing so to look back on. And I think it's very, very dangerous. And I think what's happened in this case is that the Fifth Circuit, that is even more extreme than the Supreme Court, 
has kind of called the question and said, oh, you set this up. I'm going to take the most extreme version of it. And I think here we'll see if the court will correct itself and say, actually, we don't mean a historical analogy. We mean something slightly different. We will continue our conversation with Dr. Susan Liebel in a moment, but first, it's the holiday season, folks, and the holidays mean different things to everyone. But whatever the holidays mean to you, get the most out of it in a new vehicle from our friends at Honda. Whether it's traveling to the holiday family dinner in a spacious, efficient Accord hybrid, or heading to a hike to burn it off in a powerful, adventure-ready CRV hybrid, your holiday adventure awaits with a new Honda during Happy Honda Days. Contact your local Honda dealer today. And now back to KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation with Dr. Susan Liebel, professor of political science at St. Joseph's University. So, what did you hear in the uh, arguments? I, I know some people are saying that this went very, very well for the United States. And I certainly think the tone in oral arguments was that people were somewhat dubious of what Zaki Rahimi's attorney was claiming. In particular, Justice Barrett seemed to have no patience for the claim that Zaki Rahimi wasn't a dangerous person. So in the in the the argument from the United States, they're saying that, you know, we've always had a history of taking arms away from dangerous people. Is he dangerous? And the Zaki Rahimi side leaves out the facts that we did at the start. So they just say, like, he's a guy who had an argument in a parking lot with his girlfriend, don't take his guns away. And Justice Barrett really drilled down on the fact that he was dangerous, he had done some things and that they were in the record. So I think that she'll be voting with the liberals. Uh, We also heard Chief Justice Roberts do something that surprised me, which was that, you know, at the start of the case, he said some things that I thought were very objectionable. He talked about whether yelling at a basketball game, for example, was like a, uh, you know, a dangerous or non-law abiding thing to do. He, he, another example he gave was a fist fight at a baseball game. And I, I was perplexed. I was like, why are you picking these weird masculine examples of sports when we're talking about the killing of women in the United States. And and it didn't sound to me like he had was fully wrapping his legal brain about what Congress was trying to solve in the Violence Against Women Act. But by the end of the hearing, he was saying things that were really quite different. And he, he said uh, at some point, do you think your client is dangerous? And the lawyer representing Rahimi said, you know, I want to know what like dangerous person means. And Chief Justice Roberts says, well, it means someone who's shooting, you know, at people like that's a good start. And that got laughter in the courtroom. So I I think that tells us two things. I think one, it tells us that actually Chief Justice Roberts is, is taking this seriously and he does understand the facts of the case. And he is seeing that this is a man who, who shot at people and threatened to kill them. And that might be a dangerous person that you could take a gun away from. But the laughter in the courtroom really reminded me that instead of gasping, instead of booing, it's still kind of a laugh line to talk about shooting your family or shooting women. And, you know, one thing that I think hovers in this case is, is the fear of vengeful women. Like they're the specter that we're more upset about the idea that a woman might lie than that a man would abuse somebody. 
And that kind of laughter and that kind of approach is is part of what stops women from, in fact, reporting this because they know that they won't be believed or it will be belittled. You talked a little bit about, you know, whether we could see a little bit of a course correction from the court from what we saw in Brune. What could that look like? If there was a little bit of, well, we maybe said that, but we didn't really mean that, or you took us literally and not figuratively, or however you want to put it out there, what could that look like? Uh, Justice Kagan and Justice Barrett were both coming from different sides at exactly your point. And Justice Kagan at some point uh, stopped him and said, wait, you said there needed to be a historical analogy, and now you're sort of backing off of it and saying that maybe there could be something less than that. And I think the correction and, and Justice Barrett came back and also pushed on that as well. I think the correction we would see would be that you don't need a historical analogy. Uh, Elizabeth Prelogger, who is the Solicitor General who argued this case, and I should note, she's only allowed to do one case a year, and this is the case that she picked to personally represent the United States in. And she said, look, you go back and you look at the enduring principles that we have. So if we have disarmed loyalists, if we have disarmed people who abused alcohol, and we've been doing that for hundreds of years, if we have said that maybe children can't have guns, we think about that as a principle, that we don't want certain people to have guns. And then we use that principle to evaluate a law like this 1994 law by Congress. We don't look for a historical analogy. You can't find one. You can't find one because in 1791, when the Constitution was passed, in 1868, when it was revised after the Civil War, women didn't have the same rights. They were covered by what's called coverture. A married man and a married woman were one person in law. They were represented by the man. And he controlled the wages, property, and body of his wife, including 24-7 sexual access. There's no such thing as marital rape in 1791 or 1868. And so we, we have to clarify whether we really mean that we only want the law that existed in 1868 or whether we're talking about the principles and then we update the principles for our own modern problems in our own modern times. And guns are different too. Remember in 1868, like you don't have the kind of weapons that would allow you to shoot up, shoot the numbers of people in the in the smallest amount of time. So past kind of that discussion, given everything, given what you heard, where do you see this going? I know you don't want to predict the future too much, but what do you see coming out of this whenever we get a, a ruling in, in April, May, June, whatever? So I, I'm a political scientist, ultimately, and I think the court is mostly about politics. So legislatures have the power to make laws and executives can enforce them. And the court has no power. Not It can say stuff, but people can ignore it. It was ignored after Brown versus Board of Education for a couple of decades. You need people to enforce. And so the court always has to be careful not to do anything that would truly walk themselves into the fire. And and I think this case could walk them into the fire. And I think they know that. And I think they know that what Zaki Rahimi did, beating somebody up in a parking lot, threatening to shoot them, if American law can't deal with that problem, well, what can American law deal with? And so I think what they will do is write a very, very narrow decision, one that will satisfy Justice Gorsuch, who kept asking questions about if we just decide this little piece. So if you could get Gorsuch, if you have Barrett, 
that would be your five. And maybe you can add Kavanaugh. Maybe you could add Roberts if it was very, very finely drawn. And I think they'll say you don't need an exact historical analogy. There's danger whenever they revise things. But right now we have chaos in the lower courts because the courts are overturning rule laws by, because they're saying, well, there's no historical analogy to this in the past that we can find. So I, I think that's where we're going. I think they will be cautious about the fact that the opinion polls show that people don't trust the court. And I think that this would be very bad optics for them. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth, sponsored by your Delaware Valley Honda dealers. Make memories during happy Honda days. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.